Well, if you're a guest with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today, whether you're here in person or if you're joining us online. When you came in, if you're in person with us, you should have found a card like this somewhere around you where you're seated. On one side, that's a place for some information about yourself. The other side's a place for prayer requests. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. We would love to connect with you or be able to pray with you and for you. If you're online or if you're in person and would like to do that uh, electronically, there's uh, a link on the homepage of our website where you can submit all that information just the same. Uh, we'd love to, like I said, connect with you and pray for you and with you. Uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. We're going to be back in those verses again this week and next week, continuing to consider what it means to be created in the image of God and how that image gets expressed in our lives on an everyday basis. So Genesis 1, 26 to 31. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there as we read together this morning. But in Genesis 1, verse 26... We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's Word. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or a series of movies that have, you know, sequels and then triquels, right? Whatever those things are called, right? But they may have a series of movies or a series of books. And in the first movie uh, or in the first book, there are themes that begin to emerge that are then get traced throughout the, through, through the next installment and then the next installment and the next installment all the way to the end of the series you guys familiar with what I'm talking about if so you can shake your head yes all right thank you right but you the themes that get traced across the pages or across the scenes of various movies and books and so the same is true whenever we come to the book of Genesis particularly these early chapters as we're introduced to who this God is that has spoken everything into existence There are themes that emerge in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that get traced all across the pages of the Bible. And so in this particular series, as we do some work to understand who we are and where we've come from, we're going to be tracing some of those themes across the pages of the Bible. As a result, we're going to be going across the grain of Scripture a little bit more than what we would normally do here at Redeemer. Normally, we open a book like 1 John, or a book like Jonah, or a book like uh, Exodus, or a book like uh, John, and we're, we're working our way through those passages and through those sections of Scripture, but this particular series, we're going to be going across the grain of Scripture to see how some of these themes that we see at the very beginning continue to be 
repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. So that's where we're, if you've noticed that over the last several weeks, right, that may frustrate some of you, you just want like word studies, right, where we're just looking at one word in the text. But what we're doing is trying to trace these themes through the pages of Scripture. Two weeks ago, we said that it was what it means for humanity to be created in the image of God and the likeness of God is that we were created to be glory reflectors, right, to reflect back to God His glory and out into the world that He has made the glory of the One who has made us. We have a unique capacity that's unparalleled in all creation. There is no other inanimate or animate form of creation that is able to reflect back to God and out into the world His worth and His weight and His majesty and His splendor and His beauty and His glory. And in an age where there's so much confusion surrounding the issue of identity, we've come back to time and time again to say that Christians have one place to start in understanding who they are, that we are creatures made in the image of God. And last week we said one of the ways that that image gets expressed in our lives is through our relationships. God being a triune God who's always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, right? So through relationships of self-giving love, self-giving love as we give it to our children as parents and parents as children, self-giving love as we give it to our neighbors and co-workers, to our friends and our relatives. So it's expressed through that self-giving love in the context of relationships. But this week, we take a look at a second way the image gets expressed in our lives, and that's through righteousness, it's through righteousness. Now listen, you may say, I don't see the word righteous in Genesis chapter 1 that we just read. But let me show you where it's at, alright? I, I believe that when Moses writes these words, he's communicating something to us. And when God steps back and sees everything that he's made, he's saying, part of what he's saying, I believe, is this, is that you and I, point one, were made to live in righteousness. We were made to live in righteousness. In verse 31, we're told that when God stands back and takes stock of all that He's made, and He declares it to be something, He declares it to be very good. Right? All throughout the days of creation, God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But at the end of the sixth day, He stands back and takes into account everything that He's made and says it is very good. Now that word good has a broad range of nuances when it shows up throughout the Scriptures. It can mean something tastes good or smells good or it looks good to the sight. It can mean something is pleasant. Right? It can bring pleasure or make someone happy or prosperous. It can mean being an excellent of its kind. Right? The pinnacle, the highest form that you can imagine. It can describe a good day, a good trip, a good word, or a good condition that's pleasing. In other words, everything being as it should be. Right? So, but one final way that it gets used is this, is that it can also refer to doing what is good or pleasing in the eyes of another. And so when God steps back and He takes a look at everything that He's made, and he says, behold, it is very good. He says it's exceedingly good. Good to the highest degree. Everything is the way that it should be. Everything is working like he has designed it to work. So in other words, the birds are doing the bird thing. Okay? And the beasts are doing the beast thing. 
And the creepy crawlies are doing the creepy crawly thing. And the mountains are doing the mountain thing. And the rivers are doing the river thing. And the oceans are doing the ocean thing. And the fish, they're doing the fish thing. Right? So all the things that God has made are doing what God has purposed, designed, and ordered them to do. Everything is working like it should. It is an excellent, pleasurable, pleasant condition that brings God joy. As He looks at all that He's made. But when God declares everything that He has made to be very good, right? so from a macro level to a micro level, from the smallest to the greatest, everything is excellent. Including the first man and the first woman. Male and female made in His image. The climax of God's creation. Humanity is very good. God declares the man and the woman to be very good. And when He says that everything is very good, including the man and the woman, I believe one of the reasons He makes that declaration even over our first parents and describes them in this way is because they were doing what is good and pleasing in His eyes. In other words, in the garden, the man and the woman, they were enjoying and obeying God. They were walking with God. They were communing with God. They were fellowshipping with God. And there was an inherent goodness about all that they thought, an inherent goodness about all that they said, and an inherent goodness about all that they did. So their words, their actions, their desires, right? they were obeying God, submitting those to God, walking with God, communing with God, and fellowshipping with God. They were doing what they were made to do, which was to live in righteousness as a reflection of God's worth, of God's value, of God's glory back to Himself and out into the world. We were made to live in righteousness. And yet, this is what we were made for. We may stop and scratch our heads and ask ourselves the question, how did things get to be where they are today? See, what's described in Genesis 1.31 begins to come unraveled in Genesis 3. As we said last week, it's hard to understand pre-fall realities without seeing them through the lens of, of the fall in a post-fall world. And so though we were made to live in righteousness, the reality that we all face every day whenever our alarm clock goes off is we wake up in a world that is filled with unrighteousness. It's filled with unrighteousness. We were made to commune with God, but as the Bible will say later on, we now stand under His condemnation as His creatures. So where did it all go so wrong for us? Listen, in the opening lines of this poem, some of you literary scholars may be familiar with this. You could probably recite it better than I could. But in the opening lines of his poem, Paradise Lost, by the way, if you could recite the whole poem, Paradise Lost, I would give you ten bucks, okay? That's all I can give you, but I'd give you ten bucks. But 17th century poet John Milton wrote this. He said, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with the loss of Eden. You see what Milton is saying? And by the way, the Bible says it before Milton does. Okay? He says it's disobedience or unrighteousness doing definitively what is not good and pleasing in the eyes of God that disrupts the excellent condition 
of God's creation and begins to unravel everything from existing as God designed it to. But the question for us is how this morning is how does the fall affect the image of God in man? And I would say it the very same way many theologians who have come before me have said that when, when, when man falls in the garden, that the image of God is not erased, but rather it is defaced. It's not destroyed, but it does get distorted in the way that it's projected out to the world and reflected back to God Himself. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Right? I don't know if you've ever done much antique shopping. Okay, I remember a day when my parents used to travel up here quite frequently and we would go around to all the antique stores, okay? Um, and because that's what they love to do. I think that's just what you do when you get old. I'm not sure. Um, right? Some of, you are, some of you are shaking your head and you're like, yes, that's what we do, right? right? You travel around and you go to Forney and you go out to East Texas and you go antiquing all day long looking at things. But I can remember coming across some like, old antique mirrors in some of these shops. Uh, and these antique mirrors uh, had begun to become very cloudy, many of them. And so I was, I'm just curious about why a, a mirror like that would become cloudy. Well, it's a process called desilvering. Okay, because if you don't know, now you know that when they make a mirror, essentially in the modern, modern times, they take a piece of glass and the glass remains as clear as the day that it was cut. But on the back side of that, they pour a mixture of tin and silver, a very small, a thin coat of tin and silver over the back, which provides the brilliance and the reflectivity of the mirror. So that as you look into the mirror, you see your face reflecting back to you. Right? Whether you want to see it or not, here it comes. Okay? That's how they make mirrors. But over the course of time, as mirrors get exposed to a variety of environmental conditions, the rise and fall of humidity at times, right? Or other elements in the environment, that the mirror can begin to desilver. And when it begins to desilver, that thin layer of tin and silver begins to chip away. Right? Or they begin to fade on the back of the mirror. The glass is still as clear as it can be, but the, what's the, the cloudiness of the mirror is because that backing, what's inside there, has begun to chip away and become, become it's eroding, essentially, on the back side. And therefore, it doesn't produce the same kind of reflection, the same kind of image, with the same kind of brilliance, with the same kind of sharpness, and the same kind of accuracy. And listen, this is the same effect that sin has had on our reflection of God's glory. See, we are a pale, dim, and dark reflection of God's holiness and righteousness in our natural condition. As one theologian said, he said, mankind remains the image of God, is responsible and unaltered, but has become a contradictory image, one might say, a caricature, a witness against himself. He goes on to say that mankind essentially has become a grisly shadow of himself subsequent to the fall. And I think the Bible and our experience makes this plain for us. First of all, the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, when the Apostle Paul is, just finishes Right, declaring the, 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 that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Then he moves into talking about how both Jew and Gentile stand condemned under God's wrath on account of their sin. And in Romans 1, 28-32, he writes these words. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, 
evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. In other words, the evil they had access to wasn't good enough for them, so they began to create new forms. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So they're giving high fives all the way around in the huddle to everyone who lives this way. See, the Bible makes it plain that subsequent to the fall, the righteousness we're supposed to reflect is but a dim, grisly shadow of the righteousness and holiness of God. But also our experience makes it plain. Anybody have a kid that's been disobedient to their parents? I know none of you have. Right? Anybody ever been the kid that's been disobedient to their parents? Again, I know none of you in this room have. Right? Anybody ever been full of envy? Yes. Anyone ever experienced strife? And fighting over sinful, evil desires. Anyone ever seen the invention of evil in your own life or in the lives of others who are around you? Anyone ever been boastful? Not boasting in the Lord, but boasting in yourself. Anyone ever used deceit? Lies? Anyone ever spoken about someone in slanderous ways? Anyone ever made a foolish decision? I raise both my hands. And my feet. Right? So not only does the Bible say this, but it bears itself out in our own human experience as we've lived our lives. That we live in a world filled with unrighteousness though we were made to reflect the righteousness of God. Which begs the question then, so how do we, as fallen creatures, then reflect back to God His righteousness and holiness and out to the world His worth and His weight through doing good, through living in righteousness. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you three things. Three things that I think as we weave through some of these themes in the Bible, we're going to go across the grain of Scripture a little this morning to see these three things and try to get get an understanding for how it is that we live as these reflections of the righteousness and holiness of God. And the first one is this. Church, it's we must become what we will be. As we live in this life, we're be, we must become what we will be. Listen, it is only Christians who can reflect the glory of God through righteousness, through doing good. And I'm going to deal with that here in just a second because some of us have like red flags going up all over the place. All right, But let me show you why I'm saying it the way that I'm saying it this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth about the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, the church in Corinth was a messed up church. Okay, it had all kinds of brokenness within it. But he's writing them about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all who would believe upon and trust in Jesus. Right? So Christ was resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection, which is coming at the end of the age, in which we will all be resurrected. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49. He says, As was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now what is Paul saying? He sounds like he's speaking in riddles. Listen, every human being that's ever existed on the face of the earth bears the image of God, but they also bear the image of the man of dust. The man of dust is Adam. It's our first father. Why does Paul call him the man of dust? Because God reached down into the dirt and He formed him out of it. Right? And everyone who has ever been born bears the image of the man of dust as well. The defaced, desilvering, shadowy image as, ref- as a reflection of God. Not a clear reflection of God's righteousness and holiness, but a distorted, defaced one. So every human being is of the dust, but listen, not every human being is of heaven. The Bible makes that very plain across the pages of Scripture. It is only those who believe upon and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord who are of heaven. And for those who are of heaven, okay, they shall, future tense, right? When we say we shall, we don't, you don't use that word, do you? You say I will do something, right? But here it says they shall or they will, future tense, one day, right? One day when the resurrection of our earthly bodies come, they will bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, what Paul is saying is one day we will fully, finally, and forever be a clear reflection of the glory of God. That day is not today, but that day is coming. And so the process of Christian maturation, of growth in Christ's likeness in the Christian life that theologians call sanctification, that big Asian word, right? Sanctification, the growth and maturation of the Christian life is a process of you and I today becoming what we will be in the future upon the bodily resurrection whenever we bear the image of the man of heaven and we look just like Jesus. So we become what we will be. Now, that process in our lives is a progressive one. It's a progressive one. And it's a painstaking one at times, isn't it? Right. Did, did you know that those antique mirrors that are beginning to desilver, they can be restored? Right. They can be resilvered. It's a very, in fact, those who do it say it's a very painstaking and expensive process, so much so that many recommend just salvaging the mirror, keeping the frame, putting a new mirror in it, and going about your business because it's so expensive to restore it. But even as Tammy prayed for us earlier, aren't you glad, church, that whenever God saw all the desilvering in our lives, all the shadowy, dim, pale reflection of His glory, He didn't just take us out of the frame, crack us over the dumpster edge, and toss us away, but rather He went through the painstaking and costly process of redeeming saving us and is now in the process of sanctifying us and restoring us to the image of Christ at great cost to himself he delivered the image of the invisible God up to death so that he could restore his image in us that sanctification And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we're able to reflect back to God His righteousness, holiness, and glory. 
Now, some of you may be saying, wait, wait a second, right? Are you saying then that those who don't believe like you do, those who aren't Christians, they're incapable of doing any good? What do you think? Listen, what I'm saying is actually a lot more discouraging than that, okay? <laughs> Let me just be real plain with you. What I'm saying is that people who do and don't believe like I do, are incapable of doing good in and of themselves. Because the good that they do always terminates on themselves. Okay? See, just like the mirror, our problem isn't with what's on the surface, but what's under the surface. Right? That glass is still as clear as can be, but the behind, behind it is, is where the erosion is taking place. So the same is true for you and I. It's what's under the surface. Our heart, our desires, our motives, and our intentions for everything that we do is how that action is measured. And if true righteousness, church, is defined as doing what is good in the eyes of God to reflect back to God His glory and out into the world His worth and value, then non-Christians cannot do this and many times Christians don't do this because oftentimes the intentions behind the good we do is not to be a glory reflector, but as we said before, a glory projector. We're going to project our own glory into the world, not reflect God's glory back into the world. We want credit for our goodness. We want the world to recognize our righteousness. We want others to see our good deeds, as Jesus says later on in the Gospels, others to see our good deeds and reward us, not see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. We want to be seen as a good person who does good things for other people, not being reflectors of God's righteousness back to Him, pointing to His value, not ours. And listen, someone who doesn't have a new heart, someone who's never been born again, someone who's never placed their confidence in Christ, someone who's never been saved, however you want to say it, is not capable. They, have, they don't have the desire or intention to bring God glory through their good deeds. So they're not capable of true righteousness. But those who are, we don't always live that way but we have the capacity to do so as we live out of new hearts in obedience to the Spirit, reflecting God back to God His righteousness and holiness as we're becoming what we will be one day. Second, second thing is this, is that if we're going to grow in this kind of Christ-likeness and righteousness and holiness, the only way that this happens is as we behold the glory of Jesus. We behold the glory of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, right, still that same broken, messed up church, another letter, right, because they needed more than one. Paul is instructing the church at Corinth about how much more glorious the ministry of the Holy Spirit is than the ministry of the law. And he says that while one brought condemnation and death, the law brought condemnation and death, he says the Spirit brings righteousness and life. And then he goes on to say this, or to write this, in verses 12 to 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unified. Because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Spirit, uh, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul says that when someone turns to Christ, the Lord, he says they experience the glory of God and freedom in Christ that is unparalleled in human history. Unparalleled. There's there's, there's nothing to compare it to. He says the law, which once brought condemnation and death, had a glory attached to it that was so bright that even when Moses went in front of the people, he had to put a veil on his face so he wouldn't blind them. And he says if that ministry came with that amount of glory, imagine how much glory is associated with the one that isn't temporal like the law, but is eternal, that doesn't bring condemnation, but brings reconciliation and righteousness, that doesn't bring death, but gives life, that doesn't bind in shackles, but gives freedom. How much more glorious is that ministry, is his point. And he goes on to say that those with unveiled faces, those who have turned to the Lord, right? Turned to Christ, the veil is lifted. They're beholding the glory of the the Lord. And as they behold the glory of the Lord, they're being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. And Paul says, it's the Spirit of God that's doing all of this work in you. So Paul's saying the way that we become like the man of heaven that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians 15... The way that that happens is by beholding the glory of God. And as we behold His glory, we become like Him. right? Because we become like the things that we love. We become like the things that we fix our eyes upon. That's that's how that process works. See, the only way, if true righteousness not only deals with your external actions but also deals with the motives and intentions for those actions that come from where? Where does Jesus say that the words that come out of our mouths come from? Where? The heart. And the only way to change the heart, church, is not through workshops, but through worship. That's the only way to change the heart. Listen, workshops are not wrong. right? You can go to a workshop and learn all kinds of great skills and techniques Right? You can learn how to, how to manage your money and you can learn how to parent your kids and you can learn how to, how to, how to wait, you, do all kinds of things, right? Especially on YouTube now. Which, by the way, everything looks simpler on YouTube, doesn't it? Than when you actually try to do it in real life. But you can learn all kinds of things from workshops, from experts and motivational speakers, but the only thing that changes the heart is worship. Because we become what we worship. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes how much of the lack of character development and growth in righteousness in the modern church might be traced to treating the Sunday service and the sermon not as an act of worship intended to draw our hearts heavenward toward the man of heaven and that we would be reflections of his righteousness and holiness, but treating the Sunday sermon as a workshop to help us live our best life now and to give us right all the practical tips and tricks for how to manage our life, not draw our hearts heavenward. 
And for 50 years now, in many evangelical churches that would proclaim the gospel once a quarter, a couple of times a year, right? the rest of the Sunday sermons are workshops on tips and tricks. How to, how to manage your money, how to parent your kids, how to have the best marriage, how to, how to do this, how to do this, how to do this. All kinds of how-to sermons rather than drawing our hearts toward God. Beholding the glory of Jesus. Part of what this means for us, listen, is that both personal and corporate worship are indispensable to our sanctification. Indispensable. That means whenever personally throughout the week, the other six days of the week, uh, there ought to be personal rhythms of worship in your life because your heart isn't changed just through acquiring new information, but your heart is only changed as you are worshiping the One who's able to transform it. Who's able to reframe your motives. Rework your intentions. Who's able to put you on the potter's wheel and begin to shape your life to reflect His glory. There ought to be rhythms of personal worship, whether it be Bible reading and prayer or putting on songs right, that, are, that, that you're hearing as, you, as other artists sing about the glory of God. They sing about the worth of Christ. They sing about the power of the Spirit to bring about transformation in our lives. And as they sing sometimes, the way I've, I've, I've illustrated it before, sometimes the, even the lyrics of those songs, they become radioactive in our lives. Right? Like, like they're treating a cancer in our souls. They become radioactive. And it's like we can't get that, that lyric that's stuck in our... You ever find that to be true? That lyric is stuck in your head for like a week. And you keep coming back to it and chewing on it over and over again. Or that verse that you read, you keep coming back to it. It becomes radioactive in your life. Or that prayer that you prayed, that you keep praying day after day, like the widow who's knocking on the door of the, mass, of the, of the judge saying, give me justice. And eventually, even the unjust judge hears and responds to her request, how much more would a just one do so, Jesus says. So maybe it's that same prayer you keep coming back to over and over and over and over again in these rhythms that you're creating. Of maybe fasting, saying no to some things so that you can say yes to God and free up bandwidth in your life to say yes to the Lord. These personal rhythms of worship. But listen, don't underestimate as well the indispensable nature of corporate worship. We can't treat the gathering on Sunday as if it's the thing that we do when we have nothing else to do. But we ought to prioritize it we have to prioritize it. And say, listen, even when we got family in town, we're going to be in church. Even when we got things on the weekends, like I know we're exhausted, and Sunday's the only day I can sleep in, but I'm going to gather with God's people because I know that as I gather in corporate worship and we gather and we sing together and we pray together and we hear God's Word together, that that is a way that I'm beholding the glory of Jesus as He's preached from the pulpit, sung about in our songs. That I'm beholding His glory and incrementally from one degree to another we're transformed into the image of the same, same Lord and begin to become clearer reflections of His righteousness. So you become what you will be by beholding the glory of Jesus and as you behold His glory, listen church, number three, that you begin to behave then as imitators of God. 
behave as imitators of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul is discipling the church at Ephesus into a new way of living based on the work of Jesus and their faith in Him. And in Ephesians 4, he's telling, calling them away from the patterns of living that once characterized the Gentiles, who, he says, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he turns the corner and he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self in the likeness of God, which is what? A manifestation or expression of God's righteousness and holiness that we are meant to reflect. Then after this, he goes on to write about our tongues, the words that we speak, our anger, our work ethic, not grieving the Spirit, putting away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. He says on the flip side, we're to be kind, tender-hearted, extending forgiveness to others in the same way that God in Christ has forgiven us. And then he concludes that whole discourse in Ephesians 5 verse 1 with this, therefore. Now, some preacher along the way probably told you when you see the word therefore, you got to know what it's there for, right? That's pointing backwards to something. It's the conclusion, the implication. Here's what he's saying out of everything that he's just said. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That your life would be a reflection of this God who has loved and saved you. You'd put away those patterns of living that once characterized your life before you knew God and the patterns of life that characterize the Gentiles, those who do not walk with God. They have no covenant relationship to God. They have no fellowship with God. That you don't live that way any longer and now there's a new way of living and a new life as you put on this new self and as you do that, you are imitating the very One who has made you as it, in His likeness and reflecting His righteousness and holiness. And this is how I believe we imitate God. One more, ver- one more passage for you in Romans chapter 6. Paul's addressing a common objection people have to a gospel of grace. He's basically people saying, hey, if we're saved by grace, why then do we worry about sin? Why do we put sin to death in our lives? Can't we just go on sinning because what we do doesn't really matter. It's only a matter of what Christ has done, right? But listen to how he responds to that. He, he says in Romans 16, 15, What then? Are we just sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now 
present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul says that if you're in Christ, if you're going to be bearing the image of the man of heaven one day and you're beholding the glory of Jesus as an imitator of God, he says present yourself and the very members of your body as slaves to righteousness. Listen, every slave has a master, don't they? Every servant has someone whom they submit to. And what Paul is saying is this, is that as a servant or as a slave, that you no longer submit the members of your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, right, your tongues, your minds. You no longer submit the members of your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness and sin. But rather now you submit those things as slaves to be submissive to and obedience to righteousness. As a reflection of God's righteousness. Present yourself to Him. So let me ask you church, what would it look like then as one? As one who will bear the image of the man of heaven. One who will bear that image. Who's beholding the glory of Christ in all that He is, and all that He's done for us, to imitate God by presenting your members as slaves to righteousness. What would it look like to present your eyes as a slave to righteousness this week? Listen, where is it that we spend, what is it that we spend most of our time looking at? Listen, I can tell you, in our modern society, it's this thing. <laughs> okay? It's this thing. We spend so inordinate amount of time Right? Connected to a device. Right? And maybe on that device you've got your Bible and you're like, well, I'm reading my Bible. All right, amen. Right? I'm, I'm responding to text messages from people who are asking me for prayer and I'm praying for them right there. You go. Right? Those are all good things. Technology has enabled us to, with, with just seemingly unlimitless connectivity with other people. But, I, but, if, but if I might be so bold to say that the majority of time that we're on these devices is probably not reading our Bible and probably not praying for people, right? It's probably watching videos, scrolling Facebook, um, basically wasting time that could be spent with our eyes fixed on Scripture. That could be spent with our eyes fixed on the needs of others around us in our lives. Where are your eyes fixed? Jesus says the eyes are the lamp of the body. Right? They're not the window to the soul. They don't show you what's in there. They fuel what's in there. And listen, the more you take in through your eyes meaningless triviality, the more your soul becomes trivial and shallow. What about our ears? What would it look like to present our ears to God this week? The things that we hear, the conversations that we allow to take place in our presence, the things that we listen to. Now listen, this isn't the go home and burn, well you don't have CDs anymore. This isn't go home and delete all of your secular MP3s, right? right? De- delete your Apple Music account and start all over, right? It's not that conversation. But listen, the things that we listen to repeatedly do have a shaping influence on our lives, don't they? And sometimes the messages that come through that are very, very subtle. 
And so if we're not well equipped to be able to distinguish truth from error, it can shape our lives in such a way as to lead us into sin and lawlessness. So what are, what are we giving our ears to? What conversations do you allow to take place in your presence without saying, hey, I'm going to draw a line here? Because this is, this is infringing upon gossip or on slander or on malice. Present your ears. What would it look like to present your hands to God this week as instruments of righteousness? So that whenever you see a need in someone else's life, you use your hands, you pick up, pick up a, a towel and you go and wash their feet. You go and serve very practical, tangible needs in the lives of your neighbors. You serve practical, tangible needs in the lives of your kids. Parents, and listen, students, you serve very practical, tangible needs in the lives of your parents, and guess what? Of your siblings. I don't know anything about that these days. But you serve those kinds of needs with your hands, right? Presenting them as instruments of righteousness, not of selfishness. Saying, I'm going to keep my resources and my energy to myself, but I'm going to give it away to others. What about your feet and where they take you? What about your tongue and the words that you're speaking? Presenting those things as instruments of righteousness to God. To be an imitator of God. As one whose heart's being reshaped into the image of Christ as you're beholding His glory through worship. And you're becoming what you will be. See, we were at one time very good. And for those who are in Christ, they shall be again. And in between, there is this process the Bible calls sanctification. Where what was desilvering is being resilvered. And that theme is woven all through the Scriptures. And that is one way that we reflect the glory of God back to Himself and out into the world is through righteousness and holiness may we be marked by that church let's pray father we thank you that you did not discard us into the dumpster but you delivered us from death that we who were made in your image who were once very good who now live in a world full of things that are very bad. And Father, oftentimes that very badness is still found within our own hearts. Help us to see the only way for our hearts to change is not through methodologies, but through the ministry of the Spirit, opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ. May we see Him exalted, held high. May we see Him in all of His goodness and righteousness. May we see Him who knew no sin, who became sin for us, bearing the weight of Your wrath as You expressed Your justice so that you might re-silver our lives for us to be reflections of your glory. Father, if there's anyone today who's under the sound of my voice who has come to recognize they've lived their lives as glory projectors, and all the good things they've done, they've just wanted 
people to see and think that they are a good person. But at the bottom of that, God, there has been no intention or motive to bring you glory. Help them to see that all the good they may do, and regardless of how they are seen in the eyes of others, they are still under your condemnation apart from Christ. And for those who have, turn to the Lord whose faces have been unveiled. Father, may you form us today as we worship we sing about the goodness of Christ. And may we go out of here as children who are imitating you and presenting the members of our bodies to you in righteousness. Help us to be glory reflectors today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Church, I invite you to stand this morning as we sing in response to what the Lord has said. So if you're a guest with us, I'm going to be at the back of the room on your way out. I'd love to connect with you, meet you, introduce myself. If you have questions about the sermon, I'd love to engage with you about those or questions about Christ, what it means to place your trust and confidence in Him. I'd love to visit with you about that as well. You just need prayer. We'll have somebody there to pray with you too. But this morning as we sing, I invite you just to lift your voices in response to what God has said through His Word as we declare the goodness of our Lord. Let's sing together.